Hello, welcome to Volts. I am your host, David Roberts. As longtime listeners know, Volts is headquartered in Seattle, in the great state of Washington, on the superior of America's two coasts. As it turns out, this is the place to be for climate policy. Over the last few years, the Democratic legislature in Washington has been engaged in a veritable frenzy of activity, cranking out climate and energy bills, a 100% clean electricity bill, bills on hydrofluorocarbons, bills to decarbonize buildings and boost electric vehicles, bills, bills, bills. Most recently, the legislature passed what are arguably the two key remaining pieces of the carbon policy puzzle. The first is a clean fuels standard, or CFS, like the one in place in California, Oregon, and BC, which will slowly ratchet down the carbon content of liquid fuels in the state. And the second, the big kahuna, is the Climate Commitment Act, or CCA, which puts in place a cap-and-invest system that will ratchet down economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels, 45% by 2030, 70% by 2040, and 95% by 2050. With the passage of the CCA, Washington now has, in my opinion, the most comprehensive and ambitious climate policy plan in the country. And yes, I have heard of California. I just got done writing a big story on this, and according to everyone I talked to, one legislator was particularly important in shepherding the CCA and some of the other bills in question through the House, while ensuring that they remained ambitious. That is Representative Joe Fitzgibbon of the 34th Legislative District, containing West Seattle and Vashon Island. Fitzgibbon was elected to the legislature in 2010, when he was just 24 years old. Yes, he's a bona fide millennial. But instead of moping around his parents' basement and eating avocados, which is what I'm told millennials do, he has been immersing himself in the wonky details of climate policy and pushing his state into the future. So, I'm happy to have him with me today to discuss climate policy and state progress. Representative Fitzgibbon, welcome to Volts. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, let's start with a little, a little bit of your history. I was thinking back on what I was doing when I was 24. <laughs> I was in grad school, snowboarding a lot, smoking a bunch of pot, definitely not uh, running anything and not fit for running anything. What drew you to politics at such a young age? Is it the people aspects or the policy aspects? I guess, you know, to your credit, you went to grad school. I'm a grad school dropout. Um, <laughs> oh, I dropped out eventually, but <laughs> I just stayed longer. Um, I've always been really motivated by environmental issues. And um, that, you know, included just a general concern for the direction things were going. I don't know how much of that can be attributed to, like, Captain Planet and uh, you know, media <laughs> when I was a kid. But um as the climate crisis kind of came into focus for me, probably in college time, um, I realized like whatever I'm going to do with myself, whether that's like nonprofit work or government work or something else, like I want it to be about doing the most I can to, um, to make progress on the climate crisis. And when I got out of college and kind of looked around and figured out where can I do the most, I thought 
you know, state or local government seemed much more appealing to me than going to DC and being like a really, really small fish in an enormous ocean. Um, and, uh, you know, I had enough friends who had, who had gone and done that and become disillusioned that I thought state seemed more exciting to me. And I'm, so I'm happy that's where I landed. Um, I started out as a staffer. I worked in the legislature. I worked for my predecessor in the house, um, who, uh, she went on to serve in the Senate and as Senate majority leader. Um, and when she ran for the Senate, I ran for her seat in the house in 2010, definitely was not part of some like ambitious long-term plan that I was going to run for office when I was 24, but it turned out that was when the seat opened up and I had kind of just enough experience by that point that I thought I could make a case that I was a credible candidate. And it was just, it was clear to me at that point that we weren't going to be making the kind of climate progress or other environmental progress at the state level, you know, unless we had more people in office for whom that was like their motivating thing. So the good news for me was there were few enough other legislators at that time who that was their main issue that I got to kind of carve out a space for myself as like one of the, mm. you know, the, the, the experts, not that I was or am an expert, but, you know, in, in the legislative context, the bar is, is you know, grading <laughs> on a curve. Um, the downside was nobody else cared about those issues. <laughs> so we didn't make a lot of progress for those first couple of years. And, uh, you know, and for, for five of the 11 years I've been in office, we had a Republican Senate where we had absolutely no climate progress during that time. Um, but it did mean, you know, I had the time to you know, become a committee chair and become, you know, what counts in the legislature as an expert so that when, when the time was right for us to strike with some climate legislation, I was ready to go. Uh, yeah, I was, well, I was going to say you were around from 2010 to 2018, which were pretty bleak years <laughs> in Washington, climate wise, you know, there's a longstanding complaints about the Washington legislature and climate during those years. And then you were here from 2018 to 2021, which has been a veritable renaissance of <laughs> of activity and and motion. So, what what explains this? What uh, w- what happened in the legislature that uncorked this uh, burst of activity? Well, the most important thing that happened happened in November of 2018 when we gained a substantial number of seats for the Democrats in both chambers of the legislature. We have 98. House members and 49 senators. So a majority in the Washington House is 50 and a majority in the Senate is 25. I'm um, going into the 2018 election. Super majorities in, in both houses now, is that right? We don't have a super majority in either house, but we have like a comfortable working majority. Right, um, right. More in the House than in the Senate, but, but increasingly in the Senate as well. Well, we don't quite have a super majority, so we can't pass like a constitutional amendment, for example, with Democratic votes alone. But we went into the 2018 election with a one-seat majority in each chamber. We had 50 in the House, 25 in the Senate, exactly. And so we couldn't get, like, a lot done then, but we weren't negotiating bad budgets with Republican senators anymore. <laughs> in 2018, we picked up seven seats in the House, and we picked up three seats in the Senate. And that kind of opened the—I don't want to say it opened the floodgates. It just broke a logjam. It meant that we had enough breathing room in both chambers that— Things that seemed like pipe dreams just a short time before, like our 100% clean electricity law, um, were actually within reach. And um, there's nothing that changed in the the wider political environment. You know, Governor Inslee obviously has like elevated climate to a central role in our discourse. But like the thing that mattered the most was picking up those seats for the Democrats in both chambers. And, you know, I sort of rue the day that climate became this partisan of an issue 
but it is. And that's made me a very partisan legislator because like it's, it, it feels like climate progress is more correlated to the size of our majorities than to just about anything else. Yeah. And well, I was going to ask about that. I mean, you know, it is cliche at this point that polarization is getting worse and worse in this country and parties are drifting apart. And it almost seems like in these West Coast states where Democrats are getting bigger and bigger majorities, the bigger their majorities, the sort of like crazier the Republican minority gets. I don't know exactly what the dynamic is there, but but I'm just curious, like of all this stuff y'all have done over the last two years, and you know, I was t- I've been talking about the climate and energy stuff, but there's also prison reform and capital gains tax, a million other things. Has this been an entirely partisan affair? I mean, at any stage of any of this, did you get any help from any Republicans or have they just sort of opted out of all of that? On climate, the answer is no. Um, (laughs) There are some issues that there have been good, you know, bipartisan uh, working relationships on issues like behavioral health funding or, um, some of the things that I don't work on as much. Um, actually on land use and, you know, and, 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 and maybe we'll come back to land use and talk about how that is an area where there's sort of some unusual alliances with Republicans. On climate, it's, it's not that way. On none of the big... So let's see, in 2019, we passed four big climate bills. We passed the clean, 100% clean electricity bill. We passed a clean buildings bill. We passed my hydrofluorocarbon bill and we passed an appliance energy efficiency bill, which is honestly like the most no-brainer of all of them. No Republicans in the House voted for any of those bills. One Republican in the Senate voted for the HFC bill. And then that, again, was true this year. And then the Clean Fuel Standard, which has been my baby that worked on for years and finally got over the finish line this year, never got a Republican vote in either chamber any of the times we passed it. The Climate Commitment Act got no Republican votes, with kind of one asterisk, which is the Democratic senator who caucuses with the Republicans and normally votes with the Republicans, ended up voting yes on the bill. And then on the HFC bill, again, the same one Republican senator who voted for it two years ago voted for it this time. So, so like, these are Democratic achievements. And there's not... We don't hear as much of the, like, straight-up climate denial in the Washington state legislature as you hear in D.C. Like, there are some fringe Republican legislators who right. will deny climate science, but, like... Their leads on these issues say different things. They say things like, oh, Washington's only 0.2% of global emissions. Right. You're going to hurt our economy. Like, this isn't going to do any, any good. You should focus on more cost-effective solutions like buying carbon offsets or something. You know, it's just like things that we would never do. So um, it, it's essentially a, a partisan exercise as much as anything, like as much as taxes. It, there's, there's not really a, an issue that I could say is more partisan in the Washington legislature than climate. That's crazy. You might think that, you know, once Democrats have a sufficient majority that these things become inevitable, that Republicans might want to just get at the table to affect the outcome, you know, to have some say at all, but just to sort of be saying no and then be shut out of the negotiations just doesn't seem even particularly self-interested, like smart on a self-interested basis. Yeah, I mean, I keep I keep waiting for that to happen. I mean, one of the one of the functions of you know, and you see this in in, in legislatures and in Congress as well. Like when the Democratic majorities grow, the Republicans we're beating are the ones in the most moderate districts, right? So like right. the ones who stick around are not the ones who are like right. most motivated to come to the table. 
And you look at California, actually, when California reauthorized their cap and trade bill in 2017, I think it was, Mm -hmm. and the, I think it was, it was either the assembly or the Senate minority leader for the Republicans ended up supporting the the compromise. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a significant compromise, but like the next day there were people from real Republican RNC people flying out from DC to to California to like find his primary challenger, right? Like <laughs> it, it, there's not like a lot of breathing room, especially if you're in one of those like dark red districts to like right. be collaborating with Democrats on climate. It's not as though having a democratic majority is entirely the key to the kingdom either. <laughs> there are, there are democratic majorities and democratic majorities, you know, and, and even this time around the CFS and the CCA were arguably weakened in the Senate by Democrats, you know, and there are arguments among Democrats over these things. Presumably, you know, there's not climate denialists among the Democratic caucus, but there are issues that cause tensions and there are areas they push back and there are things they tried to take out of the CFS and CCA. So what are the sort of internal tensions to the Democratic caucus here? What are the sort of issues that surface disagreements? In both chambers, in both the the House Democratic Caucus and the Senate Democratic Caucus, we lost votes on the Climate Commitment Act on both the left and the middle. We had, I think, two, that's, yeah, two House Democrats from, you know, pretty, pretty moderate districts vote no, and then one very, very, very progressive member from South Seattle vote no in the House. Uh, and then the bill passed with 54 yes votes, which is, which is a lot for a bill like this. And then in the Senate, they lost two votes from more progressive senators and one vote from a more moderate senator. So on that bill in particular, the dynamics were like multifaceted because you have opposition from some of the environmental justice organizations like Front and Centered or Puget Sound Sage. And you also had, of course, opposition from, you know, the state's, you know, essentially Chamber of Commerce, the Association of Washington Business and all of their and the Farm Bureau and, and organizations like that. So, you know, it's being pulled, taking fire from both directions, which is part of what I think makes it feel miraculous that it that it passed. Well, let's focus on the for now on the fire coming from the the right, like the, sure. the, the chamber. So what's there? I mean, is it just this stuff will cost a lot of money and we don't like stuff that costs a lot of money? Or is there is there something more specific than that? So the fire from the right is stronger in the Senate generally. The Senate has a organized kind of caucus of moderate Senate Democrats who tend to stick together if they think that the progressive Senate Democratic center of gravity is overreaching. And their argument, so so on the clean fuel standard, this is more kind of coherent because that one was, a, you know, did not have opposition on the left. So all the opposition for the clean fuel standard was coming from the middle and the right and from the oil industry. Their argument on that is all, was all about costs, was all about how much is this going to make a gallon of gas more expensive? And every argument they had stemmed from that the hard thing about that critique is like there's not a like a crystal clear answer. It's like a speculative answer based on a lot of factors that go into how much does gas cost. And it tends to be that like the price of gas is much more influenced by like political situation in, in Venezuela or Saudi Arabia than it is by like what kinds of like um, emission standards are in place for for gas and diesel. So that was the main one there with the you know with the cr- criticisms mostly revolve around energy-intense trade-exposed manufacturing. I've always felt like in carbon pricing debates, like, you know, it's about 10% of the emissions and about 90% of the pain. 
<laughs> right, which is why so many systems just exempt them just to avoid that. But uh, but you didn't exempt them. So so was that a was that a fight? I mean, they're getting free allowances that ramp down over time to nothing. I think is my is my yeah. is my understanding. So so is that is that a compromise? Did that get was that hard fought? It was hard fought, and it was hard fought in the sense that like we actually don't want them to leave, right? Like it's actually like <laughs> right. it is a legitimately economic and environmental failure for the steel mill in my district to close. And us to import all the steel from from China or Ohio instead, right. and then that will also you know serve as a political failure because every future climate bill will be critiqued based on the closure of the steel mill. Um, <laughs> the pulp and paper industry, in particular, in Washington, is like politically influential because it's like a legacy industry. They're not like new high tech mills, right? They're operating on like fairly old, fairly inefficient technology. And they tend to be located in parts of the state that are like economically struggling more than the Seattle area is. So like losing 500 pulp mill jobs in Longview or Port Angeles like would be a huge blow to those communities. And so there's a lot of political sensitivity around those folks in particular. I would say it was, it was a victory to have them covered at all. Like most of the last couple carbon pricing efforts, including the cap and trade bill I sponsored in 2015, and the carbon tax initiative that progressive left, including labor and environmental justice and environmental organizations rallied around in 2018, Initiative 1631, both of those efforts totally exempted EITE manufacturing. So the fact that we were able to like keep them under the cap um, was a big deal that they weren't thrilled about, but they, you know, accepted that they were going to be under the cap, but they essentially wanted free allowances that didn't really decline in perpetuity. And so getting allowances to decline at all was kind of like the compromise that the EITEs like grudgingly accepted towards the end. This is somewhere where actually like playing industry against each other was impactful. And that is because most of the rest of the coverage under the cap, essentially, you know, electric utilities, gas utilities, and and oil refiners, they felt the EITEs were getting too good of a deal. And that the EITEs were getting a treatment that was like more generous than they really deserved. And they recognized that as the cap comes down, if the EITEs are still getting free allowances, that means there's that many fewer, it's gonna be that much more expensive for for those who have to buy allowances, essentially the oil refiners, to have to go to the market and buy theirs. So that was somewhere where it was useful to be able to say like, okay, well, every other industry thinks that they're getting, that they should maybe not complain quite so much. And (laughs) the other element of that, and I know that linkage with California is like a controversial aspect of, you know, a controversial prospect for this program in the future. But if we don't cover the same sectors that California covers, California won't link with us. And so BP, our largest oil refiner, Puget Sound Energy, our largest electric utility, we're not excited about the prospect of like their worst case scenario, as they said, you know, many times was would be a cap and trade program that doesn't link that cannot link with California. And so if we exempted the EITEs entirely, we'd be looking at a program that was an island and where allowance prices actually probably would get more expensive than we could really bear. I think that is where being able to play some of the direct emitters against the EITE manufacturers came in really handy. Wait, so if we exempted EITE industries, which just for listeners, 
education is, or, or just industries that are thought to be particularly sensitive to changes in energy prices and particularly sort of mobile, such that, you know, a boost in energy prices in Washington could just send them across, you know, either shut them down or send them to a different state. That's that's what we're talking about. So if we exempted them entirely, we couldn't link with California because California doesn't exempt them entirely. Is that is that what you're saying? Pretty much. I mean, California doesn't have like really clear rules about this, but probably the, mo- the most important consideration that they would take into account when evaluating whether linkage was practical is, are you covering the same sectors right. as us? And, and they don't exempt, they don't have, you know, they don't have pulp mills actually in California. So there's, so there maybe is a question over whether we could have exempted pulp mills, but, but by and large, aerospace, steel, aluminum, cement, which, you know, are the other main sectors besides pulp and paper, um, California could, would almost certainly have said, we can't link markets if you exempt them. So for them, the loss of having to pay for allowances is more than offset by the benefits of linkage, basically. So was, was there... Certainly for the... Well, yes, particularly for the oil, you know, for, for BP and Shell, who were the oil majors who were in a largely supportive position. Yeah, I want to get back to the the California linkage question, but first, you, you mentioned that fire came from both both right and left <laughs> within the Democratic caucus. Let's talk a little bit about the left and the sort of pushback you got from them. Some of the left opposition has been to predictable. You know, they 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 don't like cap and trade, <laughs> and have been uh, uh, open about that. I'm curious, to sort of, just to take your temperature on how productive you felt the climate movement was throughout this process. You know, there's a lot of discussions within climate circles about the demand for ideological purity that comes from some quarters and whether that's appropriate and whether that's activist role and whether it actually helps politicians. So I'm just curious, like, what was your relationship with the climate left as as all this came together? Oh, big question. You know, I guess to start with, like, (laughs) You learn very quickly with a bill this expansive and this controversial, like how much the climate movement is not monolithic. Like that yes. seems self-evident, but it's like, boy, it was really true in this case. Um, <laughs> part of our task in the House was to take a bill that came over from the Senate in a more business-friendly posture, which had some environmental organization. Like the Sierra Club was like one one step away from coming out in opposition to the bill. Um, the Washington Environmental Council, which is, you know, like kind of like the center of gravity of the environmental movement in, in Washington, was like not willing to say that they supported it, um, but they weren't opposed to it. They were just asking for some specific changes. And so part of our challenge was to try to rein, reel those folks back in, like keep the Sierra Cup Club from coming out in opposition, get what, WEC. What were those, what, did, what were their specific things they flagged? The most troubling piece to them uh, that came out of the Senate was provisions exempting from environmental review, from the State Environmental Policy Act, our, our NEPA equivalent, the environmental review law, any ability for local governments or state agencies to deny a project a permit if it, mm. based on its greenhouse gas emissions. And so the theory there was like, if we're covering greenhouse gas emissions under cap and trade, then we shouldn't also be evaluating it on a project by project basis. Now, the problem is, and they were, you know, somewhat right, they were largely agreed with 
some of this concern was like, well, not all emissions are covered under the cap. Like, what if they're exporting fuel to China? Like, that's not going to be covered by our cap. And that was, you know, for example, the methanol plant, which is very controversial and which was proposed for, you know, and is strongly opposed by the environmental movement, would have had to be cited under the bill that came out of the Senate, even though all of the methanol they were going to export to China, like, was not going to be under our cap. So, like, that in particular was something that we had to work a lot in order to rein in that provision and then in doing so keep Sierra Club, Washington Environmental Council, tribal nations comfortable with the bill. The other part was just there's sort of a fundamental rejection of cap and trade from environmental justice organizations, particularly that have close ties with environmental justice organizations out of California. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that when cap and trade passed in California, I think it was oversold as this is going to solve health, this this is going to solve air pollution, we're going to see huge improvements in air quality in the most polluted parts of our state. And like, that isn't actually what it is designed to do. It's designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And like greenhouse gas emissions, you know, like, if I can cut emissions by 5 million tons over here, and, and then, but then they grow by 2 million tons over here, that's a win for the climate. But it's not a win for the co-pollutants that are emitted in the place that the 2 million tons are increasing and the neighbors of that plant. So what we decided, and there's, you know, we, like I don't deserve credit for this decision, but what like the, the people focused on protecting environmental justice as a part of this bill decided was we need a separate policy for air quality. We need a policy that says, here's how Department of Ecology is going to focus its Clean Air Act authority monitoring enforcement um, tools on the communities that have that are most overburdened with pollution. And that's like on top of cap and trade. That's not a part of cap. It was in the same bill, but like that it's not doing justice to environmental health disparities to just claim, trust us, it's all gonna get better over time, which like I do think it actually will in the long term get better over time as the cap comes down, but that's not like a satisfying explanation to a community that's like currently experiencing much worse fine particulate matter than you know, a wealthy community down the road. I don't think California's cap and trade bill or system has anything like this in it, right? They don't have a separate air quality set of provisions. I mean, I know they have air quality regulations elsewhere in in law, but nothing sort of meant to integrate with the cap and trade system. Yeah, that's my understanding too. You know, California also just has much dirtier air than Washington, right? And that's like a, you know, a baseline problem. Um, Washington is, other than one tiny little community next to an oil refinery is in attainment with with the national air quality, national ambient air quality standards everywhere in the state. You know, Los Angeles County is in non-attainment for all six criteria air pollutants, right? So we have a, like a little different context there already. Uh, but the California experience so colors how everybody showed up to this debate, whether it's from, you know, oil industry saying, oh, this actually worked better than we thought it would to EITE manufacturers on the right and environmental justice proponents on the left saying this did not work as well as we thought it would, that like from beginning to end, we had to be asking like, how are we going to do better than California on this particular question? Right. Well, where where it ended up, and I was a little bit uh, kind of blown away when I looked into this, but what the, you know, the air quality standards that it sets up say to air regulators, every community either has to be in accordance with NACs, or equal to the best air quality of neighboring communities, whichever is more 
protective. And as you say, all of Washington, more or less, meets max standards, which means that a lot of these communities, even if they meet max standards, are going to get help getting better air if they are close by other communities with better air than them. So it really seems like it's targeting specifically disparities, health or, you know, racial injustice or racial and um, class disparities in air quality. And that's the first I've heard of that kind of policy. And it struck me as pretty, pretty bold. Did you, were you involved in that particular bit? Yeah, I wasn't involved in coming up with the idea, but, you know, I was involved in trying to, you know, make sure it was worked in the best way possible that, 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 communities worried about health disparities, we're going to see some benefit there. One of the things that some of our you know, community-based environmental justice groups have been asking for for a long time is more monitoring. They just want to know more about what are the air pollutants that are harming our community, where are they coming from, so that we can then think about, well, what do we do about them? Um, and that was kind of where this provision started. It was like, let's get more resources into monitoring in communities that we know are experiencing you know, heavier pollution burdens, but like, what are those pollution burdens? What I think we're going to find there is that the, the pollutant that we can improve people's health the most by targeting is fine particulate matter. Um, because that's, the, that's one for which there's no safe level. Like there is like, all of the NAC standards are, or many of the NAC standards are probably too high, right? I think it's probably too high for ozone and, and others. But fine particulate matter is the one that there's no amount that you can breathe that doesn't harm your health. And that's also one where the communities that are experiencing the greatest pollution burdens tend to be in proximity to like transportation infrastructure. This is not yeah. largely in Washington coming from large stationary sources. It's right. like highways, right? Highways, seaports, airports, um, you know, largely, you know, trucks, like diesel, diesel burning trucks. So I think that's part of what we're going to find. There was a lot of fear about this provision from the same EITE manufacturers, I think until they sort of mm. understood that like this was not really about like how are we going to ratchet down on use stationary sources even more than we already do because like they're largely not producing a lot of fine particulate matter. Um, mm. The pollutants that they're most regulated for, NOx, SOx, um, ozone to some degree. So I think that it's a lot of this is going to have we're going to have to like watch how ecology and the local air authorities implement this to make sure that it, this is not just a cosmetic thing that this is not just you know new data that goes into a hole somewhere but actually guides some policy making but i, I did i do think it's um was really critical in taking some of the intensity down from the environmental justice standpoint even if you know those same organizations didn't necessarily get to a neutral or supportive posture I mean, maybe the, maybe there's no way for you to answer this, but I read, you know, the front and centered essay against this bill, and it was a little weird because it would just say stuff like, "There's, you know, these things cap and trade harms local air quality," but there's a specific provision in the bill addressing that, and then it would say like environmental justice communities uh, are, have traditionally been locked out of these processes and not been at the table when these things are decided. And the bill has a specific provision saying <laughs> environmental justice communities have to be at the table when these things are decided. So it just seemed to me as though all their specific objections had been answered directly by the bill, and yet it hadn't seemed to change their orientation toward the bill at all. And sort of the overwhelming impression I got from that is that I must be missing something <laughs> or or there must be history or something going on here that I that's not clear on the surface is there 
do you have any understanding of why they sort of have stuck to their position despite efforts to address those things? I would not presume to speak for front and center or, or for their, their coalition members, their steering committee members. I had a lot of conversations with front and center in the run-up to session about like, what would it take to get you guys to feel good about this policy? And their answer was basically like, nothing. Like, and it, and it was a respectful conversation. It was like, we have very clear directions from our board that this is not a policy that we are engaging on. But thanks for asking, you know, essentially. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so the... The approach that I took there, you know, recognizing that, that they had legitimate concerns, not all of which I agreed with, but sort of a similar outlook to what I, how I thought about some of the business groups that we knew were never going to get to yes or to neutral is like, well, how do we address as many of their specific objections as are addressable, knowing that they're still not going to get to yes and that they're not going to get to neutral, but that the legislators who are responsive to those concerns that we can point them to and to say, if you, you know, if you are anxious about allowance trading with California, or if you are anxious about air, air quality getting worse in disproportionately, you know, overburdened communities, here's what I can point you to in the bill that we've done to address that. But to be clear, that doesn't mean front and center is okay with this bill, right? And because ultimately, like, the legislators are the ones who are who are making those decisions, and we, I think, answered most of those questions. Certainly, we answered those questions to the satisfaction of enough legislators that were motivated by environmental justice that we got the bill. Well, another thing that seemed weird to me is they seem to really view carbon taxes as just fundamentally different in some way than cap and trade, but like all the same dynamics are there. You're still paying to pollute. You still have to do something with the revenue. You're still exempting some businesses and not others. It was peculiar to me, but... I can't fully explain that one. That was a frustration of mine as well. <laughs> that like, to say cap and trade isn't going to, you know, is going to allow polluters to continue to pollute. Well, carbon tax does that even more. So, so you Expl- know. <laughs> Explicitly, though, it's like a, a cap and trade has a cap and a carbon tax doesn't mm-hmm. it's just a weird it's just a weirdly orthogonal this is why i kept i think thinking i was missing things so just a final question on the left thing then um you know you talk to a lot of far left activists and you know i've been in dialogue with them for 15 years now as i've been covering this and had this discussion a million times you know there's a sort of tension between being productive and helpful and being sort of the loyal opposition always pushing further. And I talk to a lot of people who just think, well, look, it's our job to say, to demand more, (laughs) to say this isn't good enough and to demand more, you know, no matter what, basically. Like, that's what we're here for. And then there's other people, you know, and often I talk to legislators (laughs) who, who naturally take this position, who say, you know, like, when we do stuff, when you complain about x y and z and we respond by doing stuff that addresses those complaints it would be nice to hear a kind word or get some support perhaps occasionally from the movement instead of just an immediate pivot to like this isn't good enough and demanding more is that resolvable like what's your take on is it healthy the the net effect the sort of climate left loyal opposition approach is having on the legislative process? Look, in a problem of this magnitude, the answer is always got to include, and you need to do more, right? Like, like, we're not close to having solved the problem. I do think it is helpful to creating a positive feedback loop to, like, take a breath and say, like, 
it's good that we're moving this direction. I think that's what's happened with the passage of Climate Commitment Act. Like, even though, there, I mean, 350 Seattle was very strongly opposed to this bill. You know, and I think some of that is out of sort of fidelity to environmental justice values and front and centered's position. But some of it was just kind of an anti-capitalist, like, we don't trust this program. You know, I had a lot of conversations with, you know, constituents who were activists with 350 um, and said, like, I just, I'm sorry, I disagree with you about this. But, like, I think we share, a, you know, a intensity of feeling around climate. I guess since the bill's passage, I haven't seen that much in the way of, like, you know, you all are sellouts. Why did you pass a market-based system? <laughs> like, like compared to what I expected, you know, and I, I think I did expect a little more of that. So I think that's good. I think that it is important for us, like, people who care about climate change to like take a minute to say like this is good progress and we have to do more. I think that's largely what I've been seeing around this. It's, it's my experience that like the the best social movements are ones that know how to declare victory sometimes. Like the most successful social movement and I see this in the labor world, right? Like the unions who are able to like go to their members and say like you won this victory through your hard work sort of like create a empowering feeling of like we can change things and let's do this again and that is the i think that's the lesson that i think the climate left should like should should internalize is like if we never declare victory on anything we're gonna like lose momentum and we're gonna lose followers but we might feel like we're, be we're pure. Be depressed that's all not the actually the goal with climate change is to feel good about how pure we are yeah, I've had that same discussion. Like, uh, there seems to be like a weird conviction among some activists that if you say something is good or celebrate it, people will respond by saying, "Oh, we're done. I'm going home." <laughs> it's just like that doesn't really seem how, like how humans operate. Okay, moving on. Another, one more constituency question. Um, another conventionally problematic constituency in these in these matters, climate and energy matters, is labor. And I know this is, um, you know, this is subject to some anguish among various people in the Democratic Party because, of course, the Democratic Party wants to be and is pro-labor and want to be and is pro-climate, but then there are some elements of labor that are, you know, impediments, just to, to, put, it, to put it frankly, <laughs> big impediments to action on this. Specifically, um, you know, like, the building trades, especially California and here too. So how in your mind do you navigate that that tension? And do you think that tension is resolvable, gonna be resolved, on its way to being resolved? Like what's your forecast too for how that plays out? I think the tension is like maybe not resolvable, but I think it's manageable, right? Like I think I think like on each of these individual issues, there's going to be some suspicion, particularly among the building trades around what's this going to do to our jobs? What's this going to do to our cost of gas in particular? Um, there were building trades labor, not all of, but many of uh, the building trades unions, you know, remained opposed to the clean fuel standard right up until the end. And, um, you know, that was, that was too bad. There was not the same intensity among labor around the Climate Commitment Act. And that I think was largely because so much of the revenue is booked for transportation purposes. And, you know, for them, mm. more investment in transportation, which is, you know, good paying jobs for their members, 
superseded any concern, at least as far as I could tell, about what this was going to do for um, the cost of gasoline or the cost of natural gas or, or so forth. So I think that was part of how, you know, I mean, it was a good trade-off because we also, you know, legislators also want to see investments in transportation. You know, one of the big changes we made to the bill when it moved from the Senate to the House was the Senate allowed the transportation dollars to be spent on anything. We amended it so they had to be spent on transportation stuff that reduces emissions, so like transit or electrification. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. That's a huge bucket of money, too. It's a huge bucket of money. I think this is maybe an underappreciated on some parts of the climate left that like we essentially have like cracked the code on being able to use gas tax for transit, um, which <laughs> is prohibited under the Washington Constitution to use the motor vehicle fuel tax for anything other than highway purposes. Well, by some measures, this is a 14 or 15 cent gas tax that's going to be required to go to transit or electrification. Like, that's an enormous thing. Um, but I'm just waiting for that to sink in for folks a little bit. Anyway, with labor, I think, you know, building trades, you know, cared more about those seeing those dollars invested than they did in other things. They were opposed to clean fuels until the end, in part because clean fuels, they interpret that as going to raise the price of gas. And it's not generating money for the state, actually. It's generating money to like lower the cost of other fuels. Um, and that was what they were reacting to there. But I guess the, maybe the other thing, which is probably more true in Washington than in a lot of states, is like the bigger part of our labor movement is not building trades. It's uh, service employees, public sector workers. So like SEIU, AFSCME were like resolutely in support of this throughout. And I think that largely comes from their members, like their members saying like, this is, we want this to be part of our union's legislative agenda this year. And like, those are the unions that have the most clout in Olympia. So that I think it wasn't possible for anybody to say like, well, labor doesn't support this. Well, like some building trades labor was skeptical to varying degrees about either bill. The unions with the most membership and the most political clout, like the nurses and the teachers and the public sector workers, were resolutely in support of these bills. One of the things that uh, unions have traditionally sort of been suspicious about, generally speaking, in the clean energy transition is, you know, they say, I think somewhat reasonably, we have these good jobs, high-paying jobs, union jobs, and, you know, we'll acknowledge that transitioning our entire energy infrastructure will create a lot of jobs. We're just, we just think it's going to create a bunch of sort of crappy jobs. And if you look around at the clean energy industries today across the country, it's true. They pay on average less than the jobs they're replacing and are less unionized. So how important is this labor standards piece? I know it was a big, it was a big part of uh, the clean energy transformation act and it's, and it's in here too. Is that something that unions trust, do trust, should should trust? Like how confident are we that those things are going to work to to really create good jobs? Uh, I think that that was a big part of it too. And I probably should emphasize that at the outset, that that, that having provisions to say that the, the new stuff that's funded by all the dollars that are going to be generated from this program, like has to be spent on, um, is not going to be spent on projects that don't provide healthcare to their workforce, right? Or don't or don't don't provide, you know, don't provide pensions to to their workforce. Um, that I think was is is highly, you know, if not like motivating, was at least comforting to know that like this, which this this like actual experience that like many renewable energy developers are like are not 
signing project labor agreements and did not have unionized workforces, um, that that clear direction that those dollars be spent in ways that maximize economic benefits for local workers and diverse businesses and have paid sick leave and pay practices in relation to living wage indicators, that that sort of those sort of belts and suspenders, which very closely parallel the things that we included in the in the 100% clean electricity law two years ago, you know, went a long way towards just alleviating the legitimate fears, I think, from some of the construction trades. Does the business community push back against that? Because, you know, it's the, it's them who's going to have to raise their labor standards, which will, of course, raise labor costs, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, they do push back against that. But it's not like in their top five list of concerns. So so we were kind of able to say like, no. <laughs> oh, that's good. I guess that's a, a happy, <laughs> a happy outcome. Let's talk about, a, a little bit about uh, sort of the wonky aspects of the bill. The sort of theme, I guess, that I noticed as, I, as I'm reading through it and reading the coverage is let's do California's thing but better than California. <laughs> so so what were the what were the specific features of the California system that that y'all sort of consciously designed around or designed differently? Yeah, well so we we talked about the air quality monitoring and the air quality improvement piece. Um I think that you know within the the framework of the cap itself a couple of key things. One, our cap is going to decline quite steeply um relative yes, to how California is. I noticed like, we're on, you know, we're on a trajectory towards uh, net zero by 2050. That's going to be a steep decline. Um, I do think a legitimate criticism of California's program is that the cap was set high enough in the early years of the program that it didn't do that much. Mm-hmm. And it generated an oversupply of allowances that could then be used for compliance in later years. Other policies in California were doing that heavy lifting, like their RPS and Right. Their, their low carbon fuel standard and so forth. Uh, I think as the cap has come down in the last couple of years, I think it's 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 pulling its own weight more, but like it took a while. Ours is going to be pulling its weight from the start. I think another important lesson is the inclusion of offsets under the cap. You know, I know that you you know wrote about this. I think this is a critical piece in the the legitimate fear around offsets and what are offsets going to do, is particularly if there's bogus offsets. And there was, you know, reporting this week about questionable offset verification protocols in California, which is timely because Ecology hasn't adopted any of those protocols yet for our law. So I think they can they can learn from some of those mistakes. Um, but in, including offsets under the cap, I think is critical. I think the regularity of the reviews that Ecology is required to do to ensure that the allowance budget is set in the right place to achieve the statutory limits gives a not just an opportunity but a a directive to ecology to course correct if we do find that the allowance budget is too generous i think those are probably the things that are most but none of them are more are are, are more impactful than just the the steep decline that the cap is gonna is 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 going to experience right well that's just sort of built into our emissions and our targets like <laughs> well and the fact that we're starting 10 years after them right Yes, moving too slow is not going to be is not going to be an issue for us, or like it being too cheap. Yeah, it's, right. it's not going to be an issue. Um, th- that brings up another question, which is the California system places really an enormous amount of discretion on CARB, the California Air Resources Board, the regulators, basically behind the scenes. Really extraordinary amount of discretion. Um, I don't think. The Washington bill puts quite as much discretion in the Department of Ecology, but it does put 
a lot. Like the Department of Ecology is supposed to be evaluating these, you know, whether the environmental justice targets are being met, whether the offset protocols are good, uh, you know, uh, all these different. Um, so a lot of the quality of the system presumes good decisions <laughs> on the part of the Department of Ecology for the coming decades now. Should that make us nervous? I mean, I go back and forth about all this, about this all the time, whether it's sort of better as a general matter for more decisions to be made democratically through the legislature or by purported experts kind of behind the scenes. And I go back and forth. So I don't, do you have a position on that or sort of how much confidence do you have in the Department of Ecology to do, to maintain quality? I think that this this is an example of where it's good to have Jay Inslee as governor, right? Like, like Jay Inslee's Department of Ecology is not going to be making a more generous decision around, say, offset protocols or allowance budgets than the Washington State Legislature would. Um, they are more insulated from the political pressure to um, keep allowance prices low and to, you know, allow the broadest ranges of offsets possible that that we, the legislature, would be under. I also think, as it is, the bill kind of pushed the limits of our sort of <laughs> expertise, right? Like, the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, right. the more layers of detail we get into, like, the less confidence I have that I, like, know enough to make a, you know, an informed decision <laughs> right. about these things. Whereas we also have, and, and this is, like, maybe the most clear example of this is, like, we were up against an extremely tight clock. Like the Senate passed the bill out two and a half weeks before the end of session. We had two and a half weeks <laughs> to get it through two committees and off the floor of the House. Um, and then it had to go back to the Senate for a final concurrence vote. Like we didn't have time to make like really well-informed decisions. And like, this is just a function of a part-time legislature and the very strict clocks that we operate under. Ecology is going to have 18 months under the Administrative Procedure Act to adopt, to, to undergo their full rulemaking process. And I just think that's going to lead to a little bit better decision-making than, um, than, than we were really capable of. Now, like, do I have any fear that a potential future Republican governor's Department of Ecology yes, might make bad decisions? Well, that would be bad. Uh, that we hope. I, I am lucky, you know, we are lucky in Washington. We have the longest... A run of democratic control of the governorship um, in the nation. And I have actually never been in my entire life. We've only had democratic governors. Um, our last Republican governor lost re-election in 1984. Um, and they're not really sending their best to the governor, <laughs> to the gubernatorial elections either. Yeah, it helps that we elect our governors in presidential years, right? Most states do not. And um, But if something change and we elected a Republican governor in a future year, then I would be nervous about the Department of Ecology's latitude in making decisions around this program. And you'd probably see uh, an intensification of legislative oversight about some of these key decisions. Um, not that we're, we're certainly going to be conducting a lot of oversight into this, but I think that there's just a degree of trust with Offset protocols are a good example, you know, with, with the expertise that ecology has to make an, a, a rational decision about that. I've kept you for a long time, but there's one thing I definitely wanted to hit, which is the, and this is something, you know, of, of as I'm sure you know, passionate interest to many, <laughs> to many in Washington uh, on the left, particularly in Seattle, which is the whole land use climate connection. So the, the you know, there's lots of people on the left these days who are saying 
EVs are fine and all, electric vehicles are great and all, but what we really need to do is more public transit, better urban design, more density, more livability, walkability. We need to get people out of their cars. Um, there isn't really a ton in the CCA along those lines. There was a Growth Management Act <laughs> floating around uh, Congress this session, but it died in the Senate. So I'm curious, uh, well, just A, like what killed it in the Senate and what's the sort of, you know, having talked to a bunch of your fellow legislators about this now, what's your sense of whether they connect those issues? Because in the sort of climate movement broadly, this is still kind of a new thing. It's not, you know, not everybody on the Democratic side is sort of on board is a Yimby <laughs> yet, <laughs> you know, even some of the climate people. So what's your sense of like the, the state of knowledge about that connection? And what would you, do you think the GMA, the growth management act has a, has a chance if it comes back or what would you like to see done on the, on these lines? Oh, we could, we could spend an hour on this one easily. Um, uh, I know. <laughs> so yeah, I think that legislators are under, understanding that connection better, certainly than they used to that like land use decisions are very impactful in emissions generally on a longer time horizon though you know like land land use policy mm -hmm. is important because you're building a built environment that's going to look that way for a lot of decades but it doesn't like reduce emissions a lot in the near term and we kind of need to be doing both um so i guess i don't see the land use stuff as a silver bullet because it just doesn't change the urban form fast enough and also it doesn't matter if you're it doesn't matter how much you 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 increase density if you're not also increasing access to non-polluting modes of transportation like transit and walking and biking, which the CCA does help do by by providing new dollars for that. The bill this year, which was an awesome effort, and it's amazing actually that the bill made it as far as it did. But to to can you just tell just briefly like what what it did? Yeah, so we have the existing State Growth Management Act, which is Washington's 30-year-old uh, planning framework, which requires cities and counties to um, have a very robust set of things that they think about when they adopt their zoning and their development regulations and all that. And it includes protection for forest lands and wetlands and critical areas and housing supply and transportation. Think about your capital facilities, you know, restrict urban sprawl. You know, if you're a county, draw an urban growth boundary and all that. Very uh, fundamental to just like how local governments have to do things in our state. And this bill would have required that climate considerations be a part of that planning, that when a local government is, is doing their zoning updates, that they think about how is this going to make, you know, require that they use that process to reduce their emissions on one hand, and also that they increase their resiliency to changing climate, whether that's increased wildfire risk or rising sea levels or more floods or whatever, on the other hand. The bill made it through the House. Um, you know, I do think that it, it it didn't say this super explicitly, but it was clearly the intent that the regulations that the Department of Commerce was going to adopt, that cities would have to at least look at as part of their inclusion of this consideration, were probably going to include things like, you know, more density around transit. Um, uh, the bill made it out of the House. We had a very, that was you know, one of our livelier floor debates this year because the Republicans don't just hate <laughs> climate policy. They really hate the Growth Management Act. Um, Agenda 21. Agenda 21, right? Yeah, the, exactly. Um, Their eyes are peeled. The bill 
seemed to be doing well in the Senate. It was referred, unfortunately, uh, after it passed out of two Senate committees. It was referred to a third committee, which is unusual. It was referred to the Senate Transportation Committee, which is often where climate stuff goes to die. Um, It's where the clean fuel standard died in 2019 and 2020 because the chair there is just like our most moderate, least constructive on climate and environmental stuff, um, Democratic senator. And uh, and he killed the bill. So the good news, though, is that we got into the state budget a provision directing the Department of Commerce to do the same things that they were going to have to do under the bill. Um, and then we're going to c- try to come back and pass it first thing next session and hopefully with a little bit more coordination with the Senate about how to, how to stay one step ahead of that problem um, in the Senate Transportation Committee. But it would have been a big step forward. I was, the, the other good news for, for, you know, for particularly folks in Seattle is that the central Puget Sound counties are already doing this, like maybe not at quite the level of detail that the bill would have required, but they've already, the four counties, King, Pierce, Nahomish, Kitsap, have already agreed as part of the multi-county planning process that, uh, that, that, that climate is something that they look at in their comp plan. So it's not like the work isn't happening. It's just not going to be mandated everywhere in the state until we get that bill passed, hopefully next year. Right. And isn't part of the way the CCA passed this year by not getting referred to the to the to the transportation committee? Wasn't that a key a key play? It did help. Um, that senator, Senator Hobbs, did vote for the bill. Um, you know, part of his price was was all the money for transportation stuff. But he, I, um, I don't want to speculate too much about the internal workings of the Senate. But I do think we would it would have been a scarier prospect if it had had to go to that committee. You know, just more broadly on on the land use stuff, like this. A lot of legislators used to be city council members or county commissioners. And so the tension that we have on the Democratic side is like people who want to see density and housing supply and, uh, you know, climate incorporated into, you know, big giant up zones around light rail stations. And, you know, people who either came from local government or just really sympathize with their local governments who say, don't tell us what to do. That's our problem. On the Republican side, you know, we try to make common cause with the Republicans about from a property rights standpoint, saying like, wouldn't you like to deny your city the the big government telling me I can't build a duplex because that's big government? And so that sometimes we can get somewhere with that, but then there's also the just kind of the like base Republican like I like you're trying to make everybody live in a in a townhouse <laughs> like like <laughs> suspicion too, right? So both. So both parties have like a little different dynamic around this one than than on the other issues. But we have, you know, we've gotten some some good land use stuff through from time to time. But it's it's a much less like linear debate than you see on the other climate stuff. Yeah, much less neat mm-hmm. party lines, too, or just neat lines uh, generally. You mentioned this, and this is something I, I know a lot of other activists are worried about. So, you know, as I explained in the piece, the the CFS, the Clean Fuel Standard, and the CCA have passed, but their implementation is, is contingent upon the passage of a transportation package that has to contain a gas tax of at least five cents a gallon. You know, and some urbanists some Seattle urbanists are upset about this because they think the transportation package is full of highway spending and highway expansions. As someone who hates highway expansions, <laughs> what is the proper level of freak out for me about this? Should I worry about this transportation package or how much can it change before it passes? Does this bother you at all that this sort of like contingency got stuck on? 
Yes, I don't like the contingency and I don't like it for more than one reason. I just think it's kind of bad lawmaking to like say this law only goes into effect if this unrelated law also passes. Um, yeah, I've never heard of anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's questionable whether it's even allowed under the state constitution, but you know, it's whatever we had, it's what we had to accept in order to get the votes in the Senate. I don't think a five cent gas tax increase is a bad thing though. Like we have enough transportation needs, even highway needs that we could spend five cents easily without adding a yeah. new lane anywhere, right? We have, we're right. supposed to spend $4 billion fixing fish passage barriers on state yeah, culverts. highways, culverts between now and 2030. You could spend all five cents on culverts alone and not expand a single lane mile anywhere. There's also like, a we're, we're significantly behind on just maintenance and preservation of the existing road system. So I think the a lot of- could theoretically- boost the gas tax more than that though, right? I mean, yeah, so absolutely. Right. I think we probably will will have to. I think a lot of people look at Senator Hobbs' transportation package in the Senate, um, which is the one that kind of made it the furthest and think, well, that must be the template for what you guys are going to do. We're a long way away from what that package is going to look like. And there's a lot of opportunities for people to like weigh in along the way to say like, this project is bad and, you know, please don't pass a transportation package that, you know, build a new 12 lane highway in, in East Snohomish County, which, you know, which like that we're also not going to do. Sometimes a highway project is actually a safety project, right? Like sometimes there are actually dangerous roadways that we do think should be, that it does cost a couple hundred million dollars to make a highway safer. And like it's in some parts of that roadway that might involve adding a lane, but that's not the same as like, we're going to go now open up huge swaths of farmland to suburban sprawl with a, you know, with a giant new freeway. So I think it's both like, it's a, a legitimate thing for like urbanist climate champions to keep their eyes on, but also like, it's not something that folks need to, that I would say that folks should feel like they need to freak out about quite yet because we just, we actually do need a lot more money for transportation in the state, even if we don't expand highways. And if we are going to expand highways anywhere, just like look at that contextually and look at that actual project and 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 if it's actually the thing that you're like that you're most worried about. Yeah, and and I got to say even as someone who hates highways and wants to ban cars, <laughs> it's it would take a lot of new highway lanes to offset the benefits of 95% carbon reductions locked locked in through 2050. Even if we were going to spend it all on giant new highways, there's still a cap. If if a bunch of people were going to try to go move to rural places and drive a bunch more, well, then transportation emissions would presumably eat up all the remaining allowances and, ev- and all the other pollution would have to decline in an even greater amount. Or maybe there's a shortage of allowances and the allowance prices get so high that like people in those rural areas actually just have to carpool or drive electric cars, right? Like it's It's not like... That's not a likely outcome, but even if it were, it doesn't change the fact that the cap isn't going up. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So thanks for taking all the time. Just as a last last question then, you mentioned earlier that this being climate change, uh, the work is never done. (laughs) It's never good enough. It's never enough. But on the flip side, right now, Washington has got you know, electricity, transportation, buildings, you know, specifically regulated. 
And then they've got this economy-wide cap in the background, you know, reducing emissions. So what are the pieces left? So what, what's like when you come back next session in terms, in terms of climate and energy, are, is there a next agenda item, a uh, next big thing, or is it just mostly little things filling in gaps at this point? We're going to have to do more big things. I don't know that the crystal ball is quite clear enough, you know, this soon after the end of session to know like what are all the next big things. But the biggest thing that we didn't get done this session is a law around residential buildings. We the, the buildings law that we passed two years ago is really awesome. It was the first in the, of its kind in the country re- regulating the energy performance of large commercial buildings. We don't really have like a policy in place for like residential heating, particularly water heating and space heating. I think a lot of people worry we're going to come for their gas stoves. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, yes, they're worried. But, um, they're very worried. But uh, the bill that was introduced this year, it passed out of my committee. It died in the Appropriations Committee. Would have tried to put the state on track towards decarbonizing space heat and water heat in, in residential buildings. And um, as often with an ambitious bill, you know, it didn't make it the first session. We're going to have to do more work on that. That one ran into a, you know, hot storm of opposition from both building trades, labor, and gas utilities. We did get some pieces of it incorporated into other bills, one piece of it into the operating budget, one piece of it into a different bill about utility rate making. But um, I think we have to think more about what policies do we need in order to accelerate the decarbonization of of residential buildings, recognizing that that's not going to change the cap either, right? Like essentially what it means if you're going to lower carbon emissions from residential buildings is that just means that that many more allowances for other sectors. Um, but it's still something that, you know, of course, the faster we do it, that also probably provides some more breathing room for ecology to lower the cap more. Do you feel like this is one of those areas where I think the political coalitions are a little scrambled and, and things are a little weird? There's Are you worried about backlash to this? Because lots of, you know, people... When you talk about them being forced to do things to their home, (laughs) you know, the way they sort of like heat their home, it's very personal. These are very sort of very personal things and people get very, and people have very sometimes odd, but very strong intuitions about these things and feelings about these things. Do you feel like the climate movement or, or politicians or anyone has sort of done the education work to prepare people for this? Are you worried about kind of just citizen backlash if, you know, a regulator in the end comes to your home and, and, and tells you to get rid of your furnace, which is not totally implausible. I don't think that is something the public is ready for, even in, you know, even in Seattle, right? Like, I, I don't I don't think that like, you know, Seattle homeowners and more than anyone else want to have someone come say, turn off your gas. The bill that we considered this year wouldn't have done that. But I think that we like we need to learn from how it was communicated about um, most of the proposals that I've seen, both at the local level and at the state level, involve stopping new gas hookups, not forcing current gas users to turn off their gas. I think we need to be really good about talking about that aspect. So everybody knows nobody's going to be told you have to go you know, get rid of your furnace and buy a heat pump. It may be that at some point in the future... In fact, our our energy codes probably are going to require this already without new legislation. But at at some point in the future, new construction is probably going to have to be electric only. 
How do we ensure that we're ready for that? How do we ensure that utilities are ready for that? How do we ensure that the gas utilities are not building new gas lines that are going to be obsolete in 10 years? Like, I think those are the kind of policy choices we have to make. And we have to be really, really clear about what we're doing and what we're not doing, because I think that is a a recipe for backlash if people do think we're going to be coming in and telling them, you know, to have cold houses or, or whatever. Yeah. Sell your SUV. Take the bus and here have a heat pump. No beef, no no hamburgers. <laughs> right, <I forgot laughs> the president told me to stop eating hamburgers. <laughs> forgot about the beef ban. Uh, just to be clear, there's no beef ban in Washington. <laughs> we just get this on the record. Uh, no plan. No plans no to plans ban beef for that either. No. <laughs> uh, what about your uh, personal political plans? Any 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 thoughts on those? Are you are you happy doing your work in the house, or do you have your eye on other things? I don't see myself running for office at a different level of government. I um, feel good about the work that, you know, where I am uh, in the House right now. I don't see the federal government as like a really rewarding or productive place for me to be. I'm glad that the good people are there doing what they're doing. I had an open Senate seat in my district three years ago that I chose not to run for because I felt like I was just kind of getting the hang of things in the House and I was a committee chair. And um, and I think that turned out to be the right decision. So, um yeah, I plan on I plan on doing this until I until I get a little more burned out on it, and uh, that's at least that's as far as into the future as I can see. Well, you're you're passing bills and seeing actual changes made. Why <laughs> anyone on earth would want to go from that situation to the U.S. Senate is, is utter, utterly mysterious to me. I don't even know why it's viewed as up anymore. It's more like lateral or downward. I I uh, that's a. A more clear way of saying that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much uh, for taking all this time. And, uh, you know, thanks for all the, all the work you're doing. Thanks, David. Thanks for the coverage. All right. We'll talk again. 